Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a guest interview for you. In fact, it's two guests, brothers, Dr. Carl and Spencer Nadolsky. So Dr. Spencer Nadolsky is an obesity and lipid specialist physician, medical director of Join Sequence. Dr. Carl Nadolsky is an endocrinologist and diplomat of the American Board of Obesity Medicine. They are both former Division I wrestlers, co-hosts of the Docs Who Lift podcast. They both have used low-carbohydrate diets with their patients at times, but they are very open and willing to push back when they feel advocates of this dietary approach reach beyond the evidence available. And we do discuss that to some degree at the end of this podcast, as well as just being mindful with some of the new tools that we see in kind of the health and fitness world, like continuous glucose monitors. So I've done a couple of podcasts with continuous glucose monitors as the topic. And we did touch on some of the potential downfalls with those on those, but they were primarily kind of focused on the tech, what it offers from an availability standpoint to the user and what that maybe means in changing the way we view things uh, in regards to blood sugar control and stuff like that. But, you know, as you'll learn when we kind of talk about this topic in this episode is it's sort of one of those things where it's not only imperfect in the sense that a continuous glucose monitor isn't a guarantee hundred percent accurate all the time by the second. Um, although they do a very nice job, I think in terms of giving you a good idea of what's going on live relative to what you'd be able to do with just like a finger prick to test your glucose, however many times per day you would need to do that. It's almost like an access to information that's so far above and beyond what you can get from other biomarkers that, uh, it sort of gives you it puts you in this position where you can potentially take that information and try to make good decisions based on that, but then ultimately make poor decisions with other things that you're not monitoring and be unaware of those. So we kind of get into that as a topic. Um, we discuss memes as uh, Dr. Spencer Nadolsky has a very popular Instagram page where he is memeing up and down that page. So we got into that a little bit as well. Uh, but mostly continuous glucose monitors and kind of low carbohydrate advocacy and where it goes well and goes wrong are the kind of major themes to that episode or this episode. Um, before we get rolling, just a few announcements, uh, outliers ATX a group run. I host a group run Sunday mornings here in Austin. If you live in Austin or the nearby area or happen to be visiting swing by and meet up, we rate, we meet at Mets park at 8 a.m. And 9am, we have two starts. So you can do one or both, uh, options range from two and a half to six miles for each of those. So if you want a double dip, you can get upwards of 12 miles with the group. If you want, I tend to go to both of them. So if you want to chat, that's usually a good time to meet up. Uh, the 8am group tends to be a little bit smaller. The 9am group tends to be a little bit bigger. We've had upwards to 40 people on the 9am one in the past. So, uh, plenty of people, everyone's welcome. Bring your family. Uh, you can push a stroller if you want and bring your dog. Uh, it's all, all fun for anyone who wants to join. So check out details specific to each week as to whether we're actually going to meet during certain holiday phases and things like that by going to the Outliers ATX Instagram page, which is just at Outliers ATX. 
Uh, also, if you are interested in a little bit of help with your endurance programming, or would just simply like to hop on a call with me and discuss any questions or topics that you think I might have some insight into, you can head over to my website at zachbitter.com. I'm currently onboarding my one-on-one coaching clients for 2023 right now. I've got what I call bronze, silver, and gold packages that just scale up the level of contact that I will deliver on top of the actual programming specific to your lifestyle and the goal event that you're training for. So if you're interested in that, take a look there. You can also sign up with a consultation, like I said, to chat with me about whatever topic you're interested in. And those are like at once sign up. If you want to support the show and access episodes early and ad-free, you can do that through the show Patreon page. That can be found at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO. Zachbitter.com forward slash HPO is the actual landing page for this podcast. So on there, you will also find a bunch of information about previous episodes, this episode, details, links, things that are important that I'm normally putting in the show show notes, uh, as well as others uh, that you'll be able to find there. And it has the links to the Patreon page and other support options. If you want to help me with the show non-monetarily, what goes a very big way is by liking, subscribing, and sharing the podcast episodes or the show as a whole with your followers on social media channels, your friends, your family members that gets the the podcast in front of people's eyes that may be interested or unaware of it. And then it helps me grow the show. And it's a great way to support if it's something you can do. Finally, we have the show sponsors. If one of the show sponsors happens to have a product that interests you and you want to try out, then uh, letting them know that you came through the Human Performance Outliers podcast is a great way to do that. Most of the sponsors have a unique URL, meaning a co- or a link to their website that shows them that you came there from here. So uh, those can all be found in the show notes for the specific episodes that they sponsor, as well as the sponsor landing page, which is just zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. This episode's sponsors include LMNT Electrolytes and Athletic Green's flagship product, AG1. LMNT is an electrolyte packet that you can mix into your beverage of choice. They have a variety of options from fruity flavors to more savory flavors like chocolate. Uh, I like to mix this in with my bottles when I'm out training on warm days. I'm typically targeting somewhere in the neighborhood of five to 700 milligrams per liter of water consumed out on my workouts. And that's based on a sweat test that I took. My preferred flavor out on workouts, it's gotta be watermelon. That one is a go-to for me. If it's in the cupboard, I'm probably leaning that direction. When I'm having some elementy outside of workouts, it's typically in my morning coffee where I will use the chocolate version of their electrolyte powder. They have some really cool seasonal options that are spin-offs of the chocolate flavor that has done quite well for them, including mint chocolate, caramel chocolate, and a variety of other options that mix great with warm beverages. So if you're interested in checking them out, they do have a free sample pack for the cost of shipping for you to try out with any purchase. If you'd like to get a full spectrum of what they have offered, If you want to let them know that you heard about them from here and pick yourself up a pack or check out that sample pack, head to drinklmnt.com 
forward slash HPO. That's drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. Links to that are in the show notes as well as the podcast sponsor landing page, which is zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Athletic Greens flagship product AG1 is a supplement that contains 75 high quality vitamin, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens that will help start your day right. I like to take one scoop of AG1 first thing in the morning. Usually I'll mix it with about eight ounces of cold water and have that right before my first cup of coffee. I like to take it on an empty stomach because per Athletic Greens, that's the best way to absorb all of those 75 high quality vitamins and minerals the best. So usually I'm heading out for a run after I've been awake for about an hour or so in the morning and I like to have an empty stomach anyway. So that fits nicely there along with my cup of coffee first things first. AG1 is lifestyle friendly and fits into a keto, paleo, low carb, dairy free or gluten free and even vegan diet. It has only one gram of sugar, no GMOs and is free of artificial ingredients. AG1 continually updates their product based on the latest science and third party testing. On top of that, they donated over 1.2 million meals to kids in 2020. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. I love these travel packs because they're these little green square packages that lay flat and I can just stuff a few of them in my suitcase. And if I'm out of town for a few days, I know I got that first thing in the morning, 75 high-quality vitamin minerals sitting there waiting for me. So if you want to check that out, all you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash HPO. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash HPO to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. You can find links to that in the show notes as well as at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. How's it going, guys? All right. How are you? We're, we're about to tag team you. Yes. <laughs> I'm yeah. in trouble. I'm in trouble. I've, I've seen all the, the the celebrity wrestling matches, if you want to call it that. <laughs> so like, I, I know not to get too carried away with challenging either of you to any sort of any sort of combat sports, put it that way. Unless we're running 100 miles, I'm probably going to be on the losing end of that stick. Yeah. Um, I'm not running anywhere with my bad hips. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's not going. Damn place. <laughs> Before we kind of get rolling with some of the topics today, though, I'll I have to talk about memes a little bit, just because it's something that I think uh, that Spencer that you definitely do a lot of with and memes. Um, I've really become to appreciate memes probably over the last year or so because I feel like they're all there's always some truth to them, but they sort of lack like all context and nuance which sets them up to be like this perfect magnet yes. for ideology where you get the polar <laughs> ends of the spectrum yeah. both just get sucked into this one meme with one group just ready to celebrate it the other group ready just to just call you the biggest idiot on earth for posting it yes <laughs> yes that's why they're perfect that's yeah, why and, I like and, it. and spencer you know he's actually board certified in memeology yeah <laughs> Yeah, that's why I see, you know, some people I see posting memes. And I'm like, that's just, that's just not a good meme. You don't understand the whole idea. And that's, that's actually why like a lot of the keto people get so, they get so sensitive over the memes. And I'm like, it's supposed to be lighthearted and make people laugh. Like my patients who are keto, they like, they laugh their asses off at my keto 
like memes. So yeah. like they they get it, but then the kind of some of these I would call them just zealots, straight up zealots. They get so mad because their identity is like they feel like I'm just like attacking their identity, and it's them. And it's like it doesn't just relax, man. Mm-hmm. It's like it's I like to call it like an unmasking of your biases because okay. like if you find yourself getting too overly worked up about a meme, then you're probably like showing your bias a little bit. And which, you know, everyone has biases. It's just in in terms of like, what do you do with it then? Like in terms of recognizing it and then going forward in a way that's productive with that bias versus leaning into it wholesale, which is unfortunately sometimes what we see in the comment section of those memes for better or worse. If you're looking for comedy, it's definitely for better. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, this is why you do it, Spencer. I mean, you know, it ruffles their feathers because, you know, I mean, like you said, yeah. you know what you're doing. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I don't make me. I mean, I'm once in a while I'll make a meme, but I don't know what I'm doing. You do. You know, yeah. you know how to get the get under people's skin, but but in a in a benevolent uh, effort. It's supposed to. It's it's supposed to be more benevolent. But some people get really upset. But you know, it's funny because the more upset they get, it's like, oh, this this meme did well because like because then the people that understand the humor they crack up and share, it. and then the people mm-hmm. that get upset they. They're just like, there are some people that are just like, instead of making memes, maybe you should actually uh, publish some papers. And I'm like, <laughs> well, as you say, as you tweet all day long on your social media, oh, okay. You know, it's kind of like, same thing. Yeah. Such a hypocrite. Uh, it's really funny to see. It's like, you're just mad because I know how to make memes and you can't. So, I think um, you're a fucking hypocrite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Um, couple topics, I think, uh, outside of memes, of course, that uh, I wanted to chat to you guys about today was uh, one is just continuous glucose monitors. So I've had a couple guests on that have broke down some of just the sort of the influx in these becoming more or less tools that are available to the general population versus something that uh, you could only get with either a prescription or if you go further back, not get at all. And, uh, you know, they are more or less going to tell you the, the positives of it or what the, the use of the tool is specifically. But um, with most things like this, there is definitely things that you want to consider in terms of like, where are the possible downsides of either, I think maybe with this particular topic, downsides of having so much information into one lens without having all that same level of information with the other things that are going on, especially when we talk about kind of like human nutrition and how complex that ends up getting. Cause it's always a, an opportunity cost, so to speak, or a trade-off. If you eat one thing over something else, it's like mm-hmm. this, what are the benefits I got by replacing this, but what did I lose by replacing it with this? And most people, I think oftentimes maybe similar to the memes, look at either the positive or the negative without kind of combining those two. So I know both of you have had some opportunities to either work with patients with CGMs or just get information and feedback from people that are following you, tuning into your channels and things like that. So um, what's your, both of your kind of 30,000 foot view of CGMs, pros, cons, and that sort of thing? Well, you know, so as an endocrinologist, I mean, it's probably half of my patients have continuous glucose monitoring in some fashion. So people who have type one diabetes where they have to be on intensive insulin therapy to replace their lack of insulin, right? That controls our blood glucose levels. They absolutely definitively benefit from continuous glucose monitoring. We know from, you know, all sorts of data that they get all sorts of benefits, um, ranging from 
improved quality of life to actual hard outcomes, like the complications of their diabetes. You know, we know that that improves. And nowadays we have insulin pumps <clears throat> that are essentially algorithmically attached to the, the continuous glucose monitors, and it helps them adjust their insulin uh, needs. So it's, it's like, a, we call them for right now, hybrid closed loops uh, that, uh, you know, adjust some of the insulin uh, to meet the demands of the patients based on what their uh, interstitial glucose is doing, by the way. And that's one thing people need to know. It's continuous glucose monitors are really measuring interstitial glucose as opposed to blood glucose. So there's actually a little bit of a, of a delay and they're not exactly the same. And also they're not, nothing's perfect, right? People don't understand that. The The point of care glucose monitors, they'll tell you something different than what you're interstitial glucose is on your continuous glucose monitor. So, you know, just set that up for one and there's always some error, but, um, people with type one diabetes, they really, really, really benefit on every spectrum of the disease process. People with type two diabetes who are on insulin and there's a little bit more variability of their glucose. They also benefit greatly. Um, if they have to take basal, meaning they're fasting insulin, and bolus, meaning their carb coverage, plus some correction insulin that, that helps if their sugars are high to bring them down into normal range. They also absolutely definitively benefit from continuous glucose monitoring. So those are like slam dunks, like grade, grade A level one evidence to support their use. Um, as you start going down the spectrum of disease severity, there's, it gets a little bit more muddied. So people with type two diabetes who need some basal insulin, yeah, they pretty much definitely benefit. Um, the data to support the hard outcome benefits for everyone else is a little bit less obvious or definitive. And so the, the sort of anti-CGM people out there that, that for whatever reason, they're kind of jumping on this anti-CGM thing, then they jump on this. They're like, well, there's no evidence that it, that it reduces cardiovascular risk or long-term microvascular disease. Well, that's because they're almost getting sucked too into what we call hard, you know, evidence. And in practice, absolutely physicians can use continuous glucose monitoring data to interpret how the patients are doing better than other measures as far as glucose, um, the sugar levels. And so people who have type two diabetes and aren't on insulin, they definitely can benefit because they can they can see how their dietary patterns and their their lifestyle efforts change their glucose levels. And we have certain glucose goals for people based upon long-term complications and outcomes that we want to keep people in a safe range and, and, and get the most benefit. Um, but on the other hand, we can also, clinicians can look at these uh, continuous glucose monitor data and then help uh, change our management for patients also. Now you start getting down into pre-diabetes and, and yeah, there's probably some benefit, um, maybe a little, you know, a little bit of patient self-education if they know what it means when they eat something and their sugars go up and they can help kind of keep their sugar levels in a, in a healthy range, maybe a little bit of a clinician diagnostic purpose, but the, the closer you get to healthy individuals, the less benefit we have, at least from the data. Now, I think for your listeners, we're going to talk about theoretical benefits for, you know, people, but also the risks. And, uh, you know, we'll get to that. But, um, you know, you also have to understand 
well, why do we even care about sugar levels? So from an endocrinologist perspective, because at certain levels that are essentially what have become diagnostic of diabetes, whether it's type one or type two, or, you know, even in that pre-diabetes range, it has to do with the long-term complications of diabetes, mostly what we call these microvascular uh, complications like retinopathy of the eyes, neuropathy, nerve disease, um, kidney disease, and things like that. So, um, it's, it's kind of, you start getting into those chronically high levels and, and there are long-term ramifications of that. And, and, and that's where those diagnostic thresholds come from. And some of the, what we call glucometrics that we get from continuous glucose monitoring, what's your time, what your percent time and ranges between 70 milligrams per deciliter and 180, you know, we use that, we use the mean glucose, which is actually way better than getting a hemoglobin A1C that people might know of. That's a three month average uh, sort of estimate of your average sugars based upon your hemoglobin, your red blood cells that live three months. Um, so getting continuous glucose monitor data actually gives us a better number than that because it's like real life uh, sort of numbers, but there are errors. These aren't perfect. They're not, they don't have 0% error. You know, the best ones now are, are more like, a, um, you know, eight to 11% error kind of thing. So um, they're not perfect either. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I think I think the big the, the biggest concern are, are more healthy, like very healthy individuals pathologizing themselves with glucose excursions that would be considered normal, but because other people out there, whoever that are pushing CGM data, that basically say, hey, any any glucose excursion is is a bad thing. Um, you really need to 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 basically basically go keto if you want to, yeah. um, or just, or just not eat, just right? not so, eat, go keto. And so we know those things are not necessarily good, but that's mm -hmm. influencing them to do such a thing. If they think that any little perturbation in their sugar levels is a bad thing, which is not necessarily. So, yeah. So you'll see people with like insulin resistance and pre-diabetes, that type of thing to where it's like, Hey, yeah, it's probably not a good idea for look at what this glucose excursion that went up to 180. What were you doing? Well, I was eating some chips, you know, um, so helpful in them maybe to change their behavior, to help them eat, not chips, <laughs> you know, something else, something else that's, uh, you know, probably uh, a little bit more helpful for them. That's lower in calories. Yeah. And sure. Lower in carbohydrate. Um, but like someone like that's healthy, that, Hey, they had, uh, some pasta and their, you know, their glucose went up to 120 or whatever. Um, who cares, you know, is that really an issue? So I, well, like, like athletes, you know, I think, I think we'll probably talk about athletes because there are a lot of athletes that are thinking, oh my God, I got to monitor my glucose levels all the time. And, you know, you might, an athlete might want a pretty high carb diet. Well, that's going to oftentimes make their, their continuous glucose monitoring uh, glucose go up a little bit. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? We have no evidence to suggest it's a bad thing but they're being sort of scaremongered into thinking it's a bad thing. So suddenly they're going to replace that with a, with a T-bone. Now don't get me wrong. I love a T-bone, T -bone. But, but, but I'm not so sure that's what you would want to do to, to, uh, you know, prepare for a competition or something. So I don't know. Sean Baker might though. Well, maybe. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, you know, whatever, there's lots of, you know, whatever. two different kind of, yeah, there's like different, like, like you look at something as polarizing as like, kind of like your, your general, like sports-based carbohydrate performance fuel and like a T-bone steak. And it's like, 
they both, this is kind of like what I was talking about before, almost is like they both have some strengths and weaknesses and then context is going to determine when to have or not to have one or the other. So like, like you're saying, Carl, like if I'm in the middle of a hundred K race or something like that, and I need to fuel, that's not the time to have the T-bone. It's probably the time <laughs> to have the sports product. And then after the race, after I've just bombarded my digestive system with like sports products all day long, maybe that's when the T-bone is going to sit, sit a little nicer in my stomach and, you know, get, so get a ton of protein and maybe some fat in there, uh, versus going back to the, the sports product again, that I had just been having all day long. And, and yeah, the CGM monitor, I think, I think you're, you're, you're spot on, like almost the healthier you are, the closer you kind of get to this scenario of like, if it's not broken, why are you trying to fix it? And right. then having access to data that we don't necessarily know what to do with exactly is only going to open that door to something you don't necessarily want to see. <laughs> exactly. And, and people don't understand the, the false positives, negatives of tests in general. And continuous glucose monitoring is included in that. These things aren't perfect. Same with the lab tests we order as physicians. The reason we tell people we only want to order certain labs if we have a strong clinical suspicion is something called a pretest probability, air quotes for people who can't see this. Um, because if we clinically think something is wrong and we want to look for it, that makes that test more valuable and less likely to give us some sort of false you know, positive that we then act upon and ultimately harm comes from it. And so the same goes for a continuous glucose monitor. So, um, so I'm very skeptical of using it as a healthy person or for healthy people to do it based upon data and based upon, you know, the clinical application and what are you going to do with the information? Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I can see it being, so the, the argument people are, are saying they should be used for weight loss. It's like, I could see them being used for weight loss strictly in a ketogenic diet. If you're, if you're prescribing a ketogenic diet, obviously you can monitor ketones and that's a way to monitor adherence. But if you're going ketogenic, if you have the continuous glucose monitor, you want that, you want to pretty much be flat. And if you can see an excursion, you're kind of like, okay, what did you eat there? Cause it clearly probably wasn't part of your ketogenic plan. So I could understand it being that, but like simply flattening your normal glucose excursions just for the sake of it, isn't necessarily helpful for weight loss uh, specifically. So, I mean, right. I think that's the, that's the issue here. And I'm not going to be as extreme because there's, there's some people that will say like, look, if, if you fear monger around normal glucose excursions so much, you go from eating, you know, blueberries to bacon. That's, that's, that's the concern. Right. Now I will say that I have seen individuals, I get messages from these people every day. I, 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 there's one person that even because they were exercising so intensely, their blood sugar went up to like 120 while exercising. And now they don't exercise anymore. And it's, right. and it's like, that's an extreme example. There are people that were like literally doubting me. I'm like, I, I don't know what to tell you. This person told me they don't do this anymore because they're so afraid of glucose excursion. So right. either I'm not lying or the person's like just making this up to make me, you know, tell well, a story on social media, which, but, I don't it, know. but it is true. I mean, you know, from a, you know, taking care of a lot of people who have type one diabetes, we talk about this a lot because their, you know, their glucose, uh, control is, is much more finicky, right? Um, they have less physiologic control over it. Obviously they don't have really any, and they, their sugars absolutely do go up with high intensity exercise. And they, since they're giving themselves insulin, their, their pancreas and their physiology isn't controlling it. 
they have a risk of going low with long duration, sort of low to moderate intensity exercise, but high intensity exercise, you know, can make sugars go up. And then later on, I always tell patients when the dust settles, then you're at risk of having a hypoglycemic event. Now they're giving themselves insulin and now they can't regulate it. You know what I mean? As opposed to your pancreas giving real, um, very uh, nuanced, specific little doses of insulin based upon what's going on with your blood sugars. And so, yeah, I mean, if it caught, that's, that's a, that is a great example. I could see someone doing that if they're so scared of any glucose excursion and they do a high intensity exercise and it makes it go up a little bit, that's normal physiology, mm-hmm. right? That's appropriate. Yeah. Right. That was sorry. actually, oh, sorry, Spencer. I was just going to say oh, like, that was, yeah. a, it's, it's a great example because it becomes a thing of like, you, you get this information and then what do you do with it? And like, mm-hmm. I had, a, I was wearing a, a CGM monitor for a couple of weeks during like a, a pretty periodized training pace. So I had like a variety of different stuff from like rest days to easy run days, short intervals and all sorts of stuff. And that's one thing I noticed was like, if I would do, I actually kind of tested this once too. I did a, a little bit of a moderately moderate length run where I just kind of progressed and paced throughout and it showed up on the CGM monitor when I was starting to hit those, those harder intensities, those moderate, higher intensities. And, um, I got up into that, like 120, almost 130 range without, yeah. and this was mind you, like a fasted morning run. So it's not like I was like, Oh, I just popped a strict carbohydrate source. And then it shot my CGM up. It was purely exercise induced. And yeah. I looked at it as like, okay, I entered an intensity where my body was requiring uh, glucose essentially. So it's like, it's mobilizing it. That's a good sign. It's like, my body is saying you're doing something that's requiring a fasting acting fuel source. Mm -hmm. So therefore we're going to supply it for you. So I took that as like, my body's working, like I want it to do that, but I could see how someone, if they're not informed or not looking at it, right. Would maybe say, okay, I got to avoid high intensity stuff and then do only zone two or below because I'm going to get a glucose excursion. If I do that. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I think understanding what, what is normal that I think that those are, these are, you know, these are good questions. And if somebody's informed and they want to use a CGM, I mean, like I, I use a CGM and there were, there were a couple of times where I stress tested it. And there was one time the thing was faulty and I think it went up to like 180 or something. I'm like, well, that's it. I guess I got pre-diabetes, but it, it was, the, the, it was a faulty, <laughs> I had to get it. I had to get it replaced. And so I, you know, you worry about those individuals who, you know, something happens and then it, and it can cause anxiety and things like that. You know, people say, yeah. well, that's because you had a faulty thing, but people don't know what they don't know. Right. And then they may diagnose themselves with insulin resistance and prediabetes. I mean, I'm, that goes back to these things are not perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many patients I have almost several a day who come in and say, I, you know, this glucose monitor that I'm using. And by the way, these glucose monitors, these days are really darn good. Uh, the, the Dexcom G6 and there's a G7 and now a Libre 3. They're, these are the most commonly used ones. They're really good. And patients still come and say, well, I, you know, my CGM says I'm 107, but I checked my sugar and my point of care glucose meter says I'm 150. Well, that gets back to one, the point of care, uh, point of care glucose monitor is looking at, uh, the meter is looking at blood glucose. The CGM is looking at interstitial glucose. Interstitial glucose lags behind, you know, around five minutes behind the blood glucose. And both of them have their, you know, eight to 11% mean average, a little bit of error. You know what I mean? So you combine that and these things aren't perfect. And so if we, we act like they are, then that, that can cause anxiety, not to mention, well, at what level does this even matter? 
And this yeah. gets back to, you know, like what we do, you know, that why, why certain uh, levels of these sugars, both average sugar, two hour sugar, fasting sugar are correlated with what has been deemed diagnostic of both prediabetes and diabetes, because it's, it's those things that put you at risk of complications from chronically elevated sugar levels. And it gets really nuanced. People don't understand that. And that's why there's debate even amongst medical professionals of what our hemoglobin A1C goals are, you know, um, less than 6.5 for most people, um, or less than 7% for most people, depending on which uh, organization you want to listen to. And it's because as your sugar levels get better and better and better, um, they're, they're become, it's a, it's a point of um, limiting returns kind of thing. You don't, you know, especially if you're using like insulin for someone with type one diabetes, you get more risks with less benefit as you get your average sugar levels lower. So, and that's, that's in a pathophysiology, like disease state, not even pre-diabetes or healthy people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think one of the, one of the maybe positives if done right is like, you get to like, you have some foods that are maybe a little more comparable. So if we're keeping like kind of carbohydrates or like fruits and vegetables kind of in more of a like category where I could see like a scenario where if someone is pre-diabetic or they suspect they're, they're in that category and they're looking at a CGM monitor and they realize, well, I have this carbohydrate source and it gives me a nice healthy spike versus a different carbohydrate source that perhaps gives them a smaller one, they may choose, okay, well, for me at the individual level, I'm going to prioritize that one that has a lower spike, still getting a roughly the yeah. same kind of nutritional benefit from that food choice. So I'm not necessarily goofing up that side of the equation, but I am lowering potentially over time, if that replicates itself in weeks and months show up on their, their three month score. Yeah. And, and, and now we're, we're, but we're talking about people who have on that spectrum of what we call dysglycemia, they have mm -hmm. disease, you know, they have pre-diabetes, type two diabetes, maybe yeah. even type one diabetes. Um, and actually there, there's actually probably more data to support the benefits just kind of in a bigger scheme for a lower carbohydrate diet for type one diabetes, which is interesting and probably blows people's minds, mm -hmm. but it's because it just kind of makes it easier. You know what I mean? Cause they really are glucose centric meaning they have to focus on their sugar levels more so than everyone else who we want to, it's really more of a holistic disease process, uh, you know, adiposity based underlying yeah. insulin. Yeah. So yeah. people with type two diabetes, we want to treat their obesity and, and the grand scheme of things. If they have some glucose elevations once in a while here and there, that's okay. If we're treating the bigger picture. So yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, one other thing I wanted to ask you guys, if you've seen anything about this, I suspect it's in the realm of hypothesis at best right now was one uh, example I heard with uh, continue that, that I guess continuous glucose monitors sort of caught perhaps was a scenario where there was like presumably fairly consistent meal eating, and then it was producing certain scores and then following like a fast, I don't remember how long the fast was, they kind of returned to their normal eating patterns. And for like a period of a few months, they were getting lower scores with that exact same nutritional approach. So I guess the theory was that like, um, like maybe a seasonal fast could improve glucose scores without actually changing the diet in any really complicated way uh, outside of the actual fasting time period that they did. Is that something that either of you have seen anything of, or is this an anecdote or a study that you're citing? 
It was, I believe it was someone reported it to one of the CGM companies. And then they looked into like, I think it's maybe, I think it's probably at best a bunch of anecdotes. It's just data collection from one of the CGM companies. I'm forgetting which one it was. Well, I mean, so we know that, you know, if you do different types of fasting, I mean, the real bottom line with how those work are they, they create an energy deficit and you lose weight. And if you lose weight, you improve your insulin resistance, okay. uh, you know, improve your insulin sensitivity. And so, yeah, that would be one method to improve then the future. It depends on how goes... long the fast was. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, like, yeah. so I can see it. You could see it with well, well, Roy Taylor's and, stuff and everything like that. Yeah. 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 Sure. But on the other hand, um, for example, people who are doing very low carb ketogenic plus fasting, that sort of thing, they actually will induce, um, uh, a little bit of a glucose intolerance. So then if you did something, you know, if you did that for a while, like if you're really keto low carb, and then you decided to have a pancake, or if we did a glucose tolerance test on them, they would show severe uh, glucose intolerance and perhaps uh, look like they have type two diabetes. An example of how we have to deal with that in in real life is um, in gestational diabetes screening. So so for people who are pregnant, And they have to get screened for their uh, gestational diabetes with a glucose tolerance test where you have to drink a horrible syrup and see how high your sugar goes. They are specifically told not to go low carb in the days leading up to that because it just sort of induces this state of glucose intolerance. And then they'll, they'll actually get a false positive and then be treated for gestational diabetes when really maybe they don't, they were just going low carb anyways. And um, so you just have to have some cognizance of that. So, but yeah, yeah. If you, you do any type of uh, intervention that should ultimately improve your future uh, glycemic variability and, and um, you know, excursions and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And that actually brings up an interesting kind of point to the, uh, maybe a, the, what we're going to talk about next too, is just this like idea of sort of trade-offs. And, and, and I see this all the time in the low carb kind of community which is just this fascination with like higher fat oxidation rates or higher blood ketone levels and things like that, which I always try to explain to my coaching clients that are doing like endurance sports. I mean, they're, they're typically doing ultra marathons. So there's like a much bigger window in terms of how you fuel for something that that is that low intensity and that long. So I just get a wider range of different dietary habits from my, from my clients. But when someone comes to me and they're like, strict keto, like 30, 50 grams or less. I, I, I try to tell them that like, you know, these fat oxidation rates and things that it's, it's more or less on a spectrum versus an all or nothing thing. Cause most people are looking at it. Or I shouldn't say most people, but some people are looking at it as if like, I have to go next to no carbohydrate, or my next option is just all the carbs, barely any fat and very little middle ground there. And it's like, when we're talking about just improving your fat oxidation rates, like you're going to get improvements all the way down from high carb to no carb in that. So if that's something you're trying to move, that's a lever you're trying to pull. You can do that, but it's not like a free thing. It's not like your fat oxidation rates just skyrocket. And then you're also able to tolerate like this massive carbohydrate bolus in one sitting, like you maybe could have when you were on a moderate to high carbohydrate diet. So you want to be cognizant of like how fat adapted um, do you actually want to be for the activity and lifestyle you're trying to live versus, or the averse of that is like how carb dependent do you want to be for the active lifestyle or activity that you're trying to perform or lifestyle you're trying to live? 
And that's going to be a better indication of where you want to be on that. Because when you drop your carbs down to nothing, you're also limiting your ability to actually utilize carbohydrates exogenously. So if you're going to go out on a race course and then decide, all right, I'm going to do the whole train low race high mentality, mm-hmm. you might not be able to race high. <laughs> so, right. um, high in sense of carbohydrate, obviously I mean, the ultra running world tends to look at that word in a couple different ways. So, <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, it's just, uh, you know, I think it's like always good to look at it like that where, you know, eating carbohydrates is going to give you the, your body's, you're going to, you're going to upregulate your body's ability to utilize that in an effective way too. So there is like, you know, there is some kind of middle ground there as far as I can tell. Yeah. You're, I mean, what you're describing is metabolic flexibility. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think someone who's healthy will be, able, I mean, I mean, when I, I've, I've messed around with it, I got one of those lumens, um, uh, to experiment with. And, and it's funny, I can, I can change pretty quickly to using fat as fuel to carbs as, as fuel. And I think, you know, I think it, I mean, I, I love, I think Sean Baker is an example. I, I he, he's doing a lot of rowing and pretty high rep, high, very heavy weights. And the guy doesn't, hasn't eaten a carbohydrate for, for <laughs> six years, yeah. six years. Right. <laughs> and I think, you know, it's pretty cool to see because like, you know, I think of like, you know, we're wrestlers, so I, I don't think it'd be the best option for a wrestler, but like he's, mm-hmm. he's at, you know, if you're rowing for like, you know, doing a 500 meter row, you're getting into kind of a glycolytic, um, activity. And yet his, uh, his scores, I mean, he's so fat, he's so fat adapted. I, I think he would be, I have a feeling he'd be able to, if he started eating carbs, he'd be able to quickly shift. I have a feeling, uh, into being able to utilize carbs, but clearly he's utilizing fat right now. So, um, uh, yeah, anyway, that, it's just kind of an, of an aside to, yeah. to, to talk about the metabolic flexibility. Yeah. So some of this, I mean, even though we're athletes and stuff, I mean, it, you know, it really kind of gets out of my, you know, area of expertise. I try to pay attention to it and, and it seems to always come back to individual, you know, preference and, and sort of self-experimentation. I think if you're a healthy athlete where that's very different than the people with pre-diabetes and diabetes, where we just want them we're trying to help them in all different ways, no matter what to, you know, lose fat and, and become metabolically healthy. But, you know, the using a continuous glucose monitor for that, you know, there, there are certainly reviews and people debating and trying to come up with ways on how they could use those levels to individualize how they personally feel. You know, I don't know if people feel like that helps them, I guess, whatever, but you know, the average sugar excursions for a, for a healthy, truly healthy, we have these data, you know, that the average, you know, sugar level for someone who does not have prediabetes or anything like that is under a hundred. That's not even fasting. You know, that's just their average sugar that includes Mm -hmm. their excursions and stuff. And so could somebody theoretically say, well, I seem to feel better when I do this stuff. And I notice my sugars are this before I race or compete maybe, but there's going to have to be a lot of study. And, and I feel like some of that could just be done by figuring out what foods work best for people. And I mean, Zach's an ultra runner. Zach's an ultra runner. Yeah. Maybe you you can, what's your experience? Yeah. Um, in terms of like which foods tend to, 
Yeah, but, you did, but have you have you been able to utilize continuous glucose monitoring data to help you figure out, oh, okay, if I get my sugar at this level based upon what I eat, I tend to do better? Or have you not been able to do that? Oh, yeah. No, I think you can do that. I haven't gone through like the proper like steps to actually analyze my own situation in a probably a detailed enough manner to really tease out exactly what is outside of just like some general kind of polar ends of the spectrum type things where uh like if I'm, if I'm mobilizing, like, let's say we take that example from, from before where my body is just upregulating to, uh, using more, more muscle glycogen, uh, because I'm increasing pace. It's like, if it's doing that, then I'm sort of on a, I, the way I look at it anyway, is I'm on a timeline in terms of if I continue this effort for X number of hours, there's going to be a point where I dip down. Um, the evidence on this is not great, but they suspect around 40 to 50% muscle glycogen stores when you start to notice like an increased perceived effort at a given pace. So like I can start kind of thinking like, well, if I stay in this territory for too long, uh, I'm going to need some exogenous carbohydrates. Uh, cause I'm just not going to be like producing that, uh, endogenously while I'm running the way I would maybe be able to do on even a low carbohydrate diet at rest. And so that could be something to tease out, just kind of know where those points are. I think there's like, and I, I think we actually even talked about this, not, not this specific topic, but this kind of concept um, on Twitter before, which is just like, these are questions that are, have, that have answers to them that are fun to figure out, but are the, what, what tools, other tools are available to do that sort of thing. And like, can, you can maybe tease that out with a continuous glucose monitor, but you could also tease that out with just like kind of a fat oxidation test and figure out, and this is what I've done traditionally in the past is I'll get like a metabolic cart test done. So I can see kind of where my ratios of carbs to fat are at different intensities. And then if I'm racing, say a hundred mile, I know what intensity that's going to be. And I can kind of ballpark the amount of carbohydrate I'm going to need to defend muscle glycogen for that particular event, for that intensity, for that duration and get reasonably close enough where I'm not just guessing at it the way I think you often have to do if you're not having access to that data. So the other side would maybe be just like the extreme dips, which I've seen in some runs too, where it's like, it was typically like if I was doing a two a day where I would do like the bulk of my training in the morning, but I would do like an easy kind of recovery run in the afternoon. Uh, that scenario, I would sometimes see my blood glucose dip really, really low. Um, I know I've had some people say there, that could have potentially been, been device error. And I know, Carl, you mentioned that as a possibility yeah. as well. Because uh, I didn't really notice. Well, which, I guess, which device were you using? I'll bet you you were using a Libre. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which are which are notoriously not very accurate at low glucose levels. Okay. So maybe so that then, was off. Yeah. So then I guess my question for you would be, so let's say you're doing you know these long runs. And yeah, that's the problem. So let's say you're using a Libre, not a Dexcom. Mm -hmm. And um, so would, would uh, you know, you're, I don't know, even talking about a hundred mile run makes me want to go to bed right now. But um, <laughs> so you're, you know, 20 miles in or something, you're at a marathon, you know, and you mm -hmm. hit the wall that we hear about. Um, are, do you think that seeing a trend, and let's just say a trend. So like, we're not, we're kind of at least, uh, getting past this sort of error, this potential false hypoglycemia issue with a Libre. Um, but you see a trend where you're starting to run low. Is there a point where you think maybe you could say, okay, this is the point where I start to feel miserable. And if I give myself some sort of fuel, 
and it brings it up to 90 or 100 milligrams per deciliter or something, then suddenly you feel better and you can keep going. Is that something, is that kind of what you're talking about? Or, cause this is a little bit out of my circle. Yeah, that, that was actually my first assumption. The weird thing is like, when I was dipping that low, I didn't feel terrible. I definitely didn't feel like I wanted to start sprinting by any stretch mm-hmm. of the imagination, but like I was doing a pretty slow, I mean, it wasn't even zone two. It would have been like zone one. Still uh, way faster than my brother. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I used to be fast until I got, I still have good hips for now. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but my first, first thought was exactly what you said, Carl was like, Oh, this would be interesting. If I could have that dad in a race, that could be like mm-hmm. my, my feedback loop of like, Oh, time to take some carbohydrate. And right. That's what up. I'm wondering. And, mm-hmm. and I'll tell you, you know, I think I told Spencer this, you know, we've, we, we are always trying to be balanced in our viewpoints, evidence-based, but also, you know, considering the science and everything like that. And then there are people on extremes of both sides, right? There are people that say, well, everyone needs continuous glucose monitoring. It's <laughs> like, holy cow, that's far from true. That's going to cause problems. And then there are the people who want, they're not even endocrinologists who say, nope, only, only the hardest evidence people with basal bolus insulin must be on continuous glucose monitoring. It's like, okay, well, that's not true either. And we can talk about that clinically. So I actually had the opportunity this past spring um, to hang out with one of my great mentors of life, who uh, Dr. Robert Vigursky, who did a lot of the continuous glucose monitoring studies in the um, 90s and 2000s. Um, he was a president of Endocrine Society. Nobody will know him on this podcast, probably. So I'll drop his name and, and pretend to be cool. But um, <laughs> but I trust his uh, knowledge. He was uh, my mentor when I was at Walter Reed Endocrinology Fellowship, and then uh, and he was active duty. And then ultimately, he got to an age where they said, "All right, you're done with being active duty." And he actually got a job with Medtronic, who makes insulin pumps and a continuous glucose monitor. And so he's very into the, the, the weeds now. And I asked him because if anybody was going to be skeptical of inappropriate use, while also, you know, certainly being very interested in this and being one of the pioneers in this technology, he was a good person to ask. And I asked him and, and he didn't just totally dismiss it. Like we tend to almost dismiss it for anybody who's in the realm of healthy. And he said, well, you know, people are studying it. People, you know, I don't know. We'll see. Maybe someone will come up with some data and stuff like that. And so that's why, you know, that's kind of why I asked, well, even on an anecdotal level, is there a way that you, you know, like I said, like you just kind of said, well, gosh, maybe I get to this point and it seems like I do better when I fuel myself. And it's you sort of you're uh, proactive instead of being reactive, maybe. Mm-hmm. So maybe there's something to that. And, and he even he wasn't dismissive and he's he's a science based, you know, in that realm as, as it gets. Yeah. I think the one thing I heard that was a potential like caveat to that was, um, I can't remember if it was, I, I forget who it was, but they, they mentioned that, uh, the other way to look at that would be since I do follow, I don't follow a strict ketogenic diet by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm low carbohydrate. And someone said, well, you know, it's possible that you were running at such a low intensity that your body was just sort of, you got to a point during that run where you kind of, you're upregulating your fat metabolism to a degree mm-hmm. where you just didn't, weren't really using glucose as a fuel source. So it was sitting quite low and then possibly the reading was off. So it was actually mm. maybe just in the lower range of what I would normally average, yeah. but not kind of underneath the, like, you know, the, yeah. the red zone, as you want to maybe call well, it, <laughs> which, which, which goes back to, you know, the Libres being somewhat notoriously mm-hmm. not great at the, at the 
you know, the extremes, what yeah. we call hypoglycemia. And I would mm-hmm. never be concerned about someone without taking insulin or, or something we give and we don't give actually sulfonylurea is causing true hypoglycemia where you get symptoms. But again, for a personalized nuance as to where you feel best at competition, I, you know, I don't know. We just don't know that. I, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm skeptical, but you know, I wonder if like, it's interesting. If I could replicate that, I wonder if it would be interesting to do like a couple different modes where like I hit that spot now, introduce some like strides or sprints to see if like I can get it to spike up just endogenously. Cause in that case, it would just be like, okay, you might, then that maybe is like a little more conducive of the, the second like example. Whereas if I try to do that and it's just like pulling teeth then, you know, that maybe is an indication that, yeah, your resources from a muscle glycogen side of things are getting to a point where it's time to start topping off a little bit, uh, and just see kind of where, where the, you know, the field, uh, experiences maybe lean for something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. Interesting. Um, yeah, I think that was like most of the CGM stuff that I wanted to talk to you guys about. If, if you guys want to go in any other direction with that, we certainly can, um no i mean i think the gist is that like yeah again we kind of take a middle of the road thing i I always joke about like you don't need a cgm to lose weight and people get mad the keto people get mad at me it's like (laughs) no you don't need a cgm to lose weight just like you don't need a calorie counter app to lose weight they may be tools i would say if you're doing a ketogenic diet it would help with adherence and understanding oh shoot you know what i'm getting carbs in this in this meal which again carbs are calories getting more than you think you are help cut it out. It's going to help you lose weight, whatever. Um, so I can see it being a tool and I have patients that I, I prescribe them as well. I do it for, especially for my patients with pre-diabetes and type two diabetes that they do want to follow a lower carb diet and they want to ensure that they're not getting as many carbs as they, um, as they, as they want, you know, so I could see it, but it's like, it's, it's just a tool. It's all still energy balance. It's not the carbs that are causing weight gain or weight loss. It's the calories. But if you infer that they're having a spike and they don't realize they're getting those carbs, those are calories. Although, you know, to that point, you know, a glycemic index is different than glycemic load. So they might, they might spike up from an orange or a carrot and hardly get any intake in, but then they could eat a eight potatoes <laughs> and not really have a glucose spike, but get a thousand more calories. So yeah. it's, you know, you have area, to be careful about that area too. under the curve area under. Yeah. The, yeah, and right. and the thing is these glucose monitors don't, they don't really tell you that unless you really look at it. Uh, and it's, you know, like I it's said, almost... there's certain. Yeah. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode sponsors are athletic greens and element T you can find links to those in the show notes and at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Take advantage of Athletic Greens free one year supply of vitamin D and five travel packs and LMNT's sample pack. It's almost like it's a, it's, it's a piece of technology that is like ahead of like the rest of the information we'd like to have. So it's like mm-hmm. maybe someday we have a device that also gives you different things like your lipid profile and all the other stuff that comes with it. So you can see like how this is working in the whole system versus just one piece to it. Yeah. And, and ultimately, you know, if people really want to use these in these manners, there's going to have to be someone doing some good studies that, that are beyond our, uh, you know, comprehension on do you get benefit or not? Mm-hmm. There has to be some clinical benefit. Everything we do as clinicians or as coaches, personal trainers, whomever, we should be doing things based on, are we getting some benefit for patients? 
in a, in the real life versus just these pretend maybe sort of, and we're actually causing more anxiety. And that's, that's where these come into problem. I mean, you know, I just had one that expired in my office the other day. So when Spencer and I went to obesity week uh, a couple of weeks ago, I, you know, I said, yeah, what the heck I'll put this one on. It was a Libre three. It was a, you know, one of the new ones and it's one of the best ones we have. And immediately after I put it on, I just happened to get uh, some teriyaki chicken and rice. I can tolerate that. My sugar shouldn't go up that high. They should not go past 140, but it did. And I was like, well, that guess that's it. Like I took, like Spencer said earlier, well, I guess that, that's it. I'm done. I mean, I, you know, and I was like, well, whatever, maybe, it, you know, it could have been real. Back to broccoli and chicken but, for you. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and then, and then it, and then it basically stayed at a hundred the next uh, week and a half and it never moved despite binging on my chocolate at night. Yeah. Yeah, it's it is. I think you 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 get some individuality with it, which is maybe insightful for some for some folks. But uh, yeah, um, I think like the 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 overall message there is like the gold standard is if you're going to have something like that, having a coach or a person you can kind of bounce yeah. the data off of who knows what they're talking about is going to be a big asset in that situation versus just kind of blindly going about it more or less. Which which is kind of probably general advice when it comes to this, making big lifestyle changes and things like that in general. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you see all these TikTokers and Instagrammers. I mean, you, yeah, I don't want to name names, but um, they basically make it seem like any glucose excursion is a bad thing. And so then it's like, well, you get a good, you know, coach or doctor who understands this stuff and, you know, you don't get worried about some of these things. So mm-hmm. yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I think that kind of transitions a little bit into kind of the next topic, which is just what I would sort of call kind of fear mongering more or less, which uh, you get this, I think anyway, anytime something gets popular enough, quick enough, and the groups get big enough where you get a combination of just essentially competition to be recognized, maybe is one way to look at it. And then also just uh, getting people to more or less follow along because they're afraid of the alternative versus the potential positives and negatives and actually balancing out whether it's a good lifestyle choice for them or not. And I mean, the low carb community, ketogenic community, carnivore community, like, which is all kind of under the same umbrella, more or less, um, you know, they don't, they don't avoid that just like any of these other dietary trends do. So um, for you guys who are kind of like more or less uh, dietary, Gnostic in terms of like having a very strict, this is how you have to do it versus looking at it as let's figure out what's going to work for you at the individual level based on the research we have. Um, what are some of like the, for, for those of us, for those listening who are like in the low carb dietary sphere, are there some like red flags that you like to share with people just like look out for this and if you see this that's a big red flag to say maybe this isn't the person i should be paying attention to when it comes to like planning my nutrition and stuff like that yeah it's it's very absolutism type of of comments so like carbs are the cause of obesity red flag that person's an idiot fructose fruit is is should be just poison Red flag, that person's an idiot. Uh, things like that, very absolute. About um, L- LDL denialism, you know, lipid denialism. Yeah, stuff like LDL that. is not the cause of, of cardiovascular disease. Well, it, 
you know, like there's a lot more nuance of that. Yeah. I would just, you know, it, it, or I saw well, I saw one today of Spencer's one of Spencer's favorite buddies who just had about 18 lines that just said saturated fat is healthy, saturated fat <laughs> is healthy, saturated fat is healthy. And it's like, okay, <laughs> that's not true. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> I mean, okay, but it's it's yeah, it's, but it's, it's, it's not, not necessarily, necessarily wrong, un, unhealthy, un, right? You know, it's, in, it's, in certain uh, kind, right? So it's kind it's of like, a, okay, let's yeah, these these hardcore extremist absolutisms yeah yeah that, that's the big those are the biggest what red about flags spencer, like, spencer did one the other day that caught a lot of attention the how for fun. some reason some of them are into like anti-vaxxing too yeah so you i see, don't know what the deal you is see this that, weird yeah, it's, it's so the thing is low carb we're my brother and i we're we're strong advocates for low carb we we've been you know yeah. in medical school since medical school and, and even below that or before that the problem is I think the zealots to me, that's why I make the memes. Cause I love making fun of the zealots. Cause they're the <laughs> ones that get so upset and people, a lot of people can laugh about it. Cause they see the same things. It's like, you know, that, that is pretty stupid. Like, why do they say that? So they're really easy to make fun of. And so it's not low carb that I don't like. I, I it's, mm-hmm. the, it's the zealots that I don't like. And it's like saying fruit is poison and, and things like that. It's like, well, that's just that's just, like you're shooting yourself in the foot because it's not a it's not a it's not a reasonable thing to say, right. and it's going to make you look worse. Whereas, like, there's true therapeutic effects from a low carbohydrate diet. I think we know that. So just right. go with that. Yeah. the uh, The irony is that you know, like in endocrinology, you know, <laughs> most endocrinologists, because historically there is a little bit of a glucocentric approach which we try to get away from, and we want to be more holistic, anyways. Now, especially with cardiometabolic stuff. But endocrinologists have historically been, you know, a little bit to the low carb extreme because there's so much glucocentric his- history with it. So they're always like, well, God, just quit eating the rice, quit, quit eating the, the whatever that makes your sugars go up because there's so much in type one diabetes and, and type two diabetes about, you know, the glucose excursions. We just have better therapies and, and a little bit better nuance of, of overall nutritional advice nowadays. So we shouldn't be that glucocentric, but, um, yeah, it's, it's a little bit ironic there, but yeah, like mm-hmm. avoid vegetables. Cause they're bad for you because like, X, X, Y, Z, cause of this mech, the, the worst are these, uh, I call them mechanistic um, masturbators. Yeah. They, they, <laughs> they love, and, and, and the thing is they get a ton of traction because for whatever mm-hmm. reason, the mechanisms are so much sexier than these kind of like nebulous outcomes that we don't necessarily know yet. Mm-hmm. So when you pick out these mechanisms, they seem so cool and they, and they really get people pumped up. Like you pick one yeah. small little aspect of something that you're eating. So let's, let's go with vegetables. Cause like the carnivores, you know, I don't actually, I like Sean Baker. Um, cause he doesn't necessarily do this. I've seen other, other carnivores basically pick out a vegetable and they pick out one small thing of the vegetable and they basically find some small study to say, look, these are poisonous. Despite the fact that people eat more vegetables tend to do better in, in health outcomes, but you can, you can find little things and then just basically say, these things are, are bad for you based on the small mechanism. Carbohydrates are another thing. Cause you can, you can find all sorts of little things with obviously glucose excursions and, and try to correlate that to glucose, uh, glycemic variability and things like that, that we didn't really get into with the CGM and just say, see, if you eat carbs and you have some of these, uh, more, uh, spikes in glucose, Obviously, it's going to relate to worsening outcomes in um, cardiovascular disease. It's like, no, that's that's not true. You're 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 extrapolating there and, and not being nuanced, uh, of course. So, 
-hmm. people that make very um, absolute. So like, let's just talk about the LDL thing. So like you you could look at the opposite and people, they'd be like, well, people just keep saying that LDL absolutely causes cardiovascular disease. It's like, well, okay. So we have just tons of data to look at the pathophysiology, the genetics and everything to say, yes, LDL particles are part part of the causal pathway for uh, cardiovascular disease, it doesn't necessarily mean that if you have higher levels of these, you're automatically going to get cardiovascular disease. We should be able to have that conversation Mm -hmm. as opposed to then just say, nope, they're not causal or, or nope, LDL has nothing to do with cardiovascular disease. Or yes, if you have high LDL, you're going to die of a heart attack. Why can't we, Mm -hmm. why can't we talk about this little bit of this middle, middle ground? So, um, I, I think, a lot of the low carbers kind of shoot themselves in the foot. Cause then you see this, you see, it starts with like this insulin and fat gain. Then it goes down to, um, uh, it, it goes all the way down into, then it goes to LDL and then it goes down into this anti-vaxxer to where it's like, okay, mm-hmm. now you just kind of look like a crazy person. And now you're going to, you're going to, unfortunately it happens a lot in the low carb community to where it's like from the outside, it, it it's like, those people aren't on the level, you know what I'm saying? So like, instead, why not just, why not just be reasonable and say low carb is a very therapeutic. Yeah. Maybe there's something else about low carb that causes some resiliency in those uh, people. And maybe they start getting a little bit higher LDL, uh, levels, um, but improvements in these other metabolic markers that maybe, maybe, uh, maybe those cancel out. I'm not sure. We don't really have that much data, but instead it turns into like, nope, LDL, uh, you know, LDL because I have to defend it now versus look at it as a potential trade-off. Yeah. And then, and Mm -hmm. then the anti-vaxxing comes because it's like, well, I'm metabolically healthy. I'm going to have a better immune system. So who cares about vaccines? And then you have to find every little thing about vaccines that, you know, unfortunately they're not 100% effective. And and the other thing about this is none of these things, (laughs) my favorite uh, phrase is none of them are mutually exclusive. Like yeah. we can, we can cut carbs. We do this all the time in our, my patients, especially we're always trying to find areas of unnecessary carbs to cut. And we try to shift them a little bit more Mediterranean. So we don't say, all right, cut your carbs, but drink butter and eat T-bone steaks all day. As much mm-hmm. as that might sound fun. You know, we go a little bit more Mediterranean low carb you know? <laughs> and, you know, and then, yeah. And yes, let's reduce your, your, your risk, your, your kind of natural uh, risk of, uh, having low immunity by improving your overall baseline health, but let's still get your vaccinations. Like these things aren't mutually exclusive. They're not in competition yeah. to each other. So I don't understand it, but other than there's a lot of marketing that goes into these things and people are making money by books, you know, making books that are called obesity codes and, and saying you have to fast. That's the only way. And it's the, yeah. it's the cause of all obesity. It's all you know? insulin. So, so it's, there's a lot of money that drives uh, these yeah. uh, conflicts of interest. Unfortunately. Yeah. Ironic. Oh, it's big pharma. They're the ones making money. Well now, <laughs> yeah. now it's you making the money by fear mongering yeah. and, and selling your books. So yeah, like, don't, what whatever it? you do, don't, don't buy that vaccine. That's going to protect you from uh COVID-19, but, but, but actually buy my supplement that costs more. <laughs> yeah. And buy and my, my book. book. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. give me some money. It's the interesting thing I find is there is seems to be like a competition to like, who can, who can come up with some kind of either magic bullet or, or like demon in order to kind of use as their, their sort of platform booster. 
And then, you know, as the momentum grows, you have to add to that so that there is, because mm -hmm. someone's already done it otherwise, and everyone's already yeah. giving them their attention for that. So I always wonder, like with social media, how much this exasperates <laughs> that, because then you do have this, you, it, it transfers from like, we have this potential tool in a low carbohydrate diet to like, well, now I need to make it sound better coming from me than from somebody else. Therefore, yeah. I got to say this, that, and the other thing. And then I think we have this competition of who can say the craziest thing that's still believable enough to attract yeah. a big enough base. Yeah. And you get yeah. a handful of people who end up becoming the, and this, I think is a Spencer was your point on your, yeah. your post the other day, which was like, now you have the, the face of low carbohydrate being this handful of individuals with massive followings who are doing exactly what you said, all those red mm -hmm. flags were. And yes. it's like, that's where it gets hard. And yep. the issue is that I've noticed this is that the other kind of seemingly reasonable low carb people, they, they, they don't, they don't bat an eye They're They almost in fact, like, yeah, good job. And, and they, they're friends with them as opposed to like, it would make them more legitimate if they're like, this guy's not a part of us. Low carbs. Awesome. But like that person's crazy, yeah. but instead, instead they're all high-fiving each other. And I'm like, if, yeah, if, I, if I, that guy's the <laughs> face, if you're, if you're, you're like, people aren't going to take you seriously. And you, you may be, get mad at me for saying that people are listening right now. Like, yeah. Screw that. Screw that Dr. Spencer guy. I know it. They're listening right now. They're getting <laughs> yeah. mad right well, now. We'll, we'll make sure you share your most people. Are, most people are saying <laughs> I love it. Most, I love it. Yeah. Thank you. You know, but Thank you, I, you know, and, and I, and I'm definitely not going to get into specific names or anything, but what you are describing is unfortunately our political environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 The blueprint uh, was written know, long before low carb. You know, they've definitely yeah used what something that's already been proven to be successful within like online uh momentum i guess you'd call it but yeah my, yeah you know, my suggestion get, would be to, to if you if you're if you legitimately care about the low carb movement you should you should get you should ostracize these these nuts out of your yeah. uh out of your camp yep. because they're they're the ones shooting you in the foot and you may think well oh i don't do this I don't do this. Well, yeah, but you're, you're com complicit. You're, you're allowing it's, them to do yeah, it. Yeah. It's, it's ruining it. it. You, th you think yeah. I'm kidding? No, that's what people in the outside are looking yep. at. I promise you. Yeah. And that limits, it limits both the overall goal of whether yeah. it's authentic or not uh, of growing the message to like a greater population. And then it, it definitely blinds the actual benefits that we're trying to kind of unearth yeah. with this that are yet to be discovered or we know but just don't get the shine because they're being you know eclipsed by you know some sensational thing that's you know at best partly true um yes i wonder too like because there's also a, there's layers to this there's the, the 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 obvious ones who are kind of just they're spewing nonsense wherever they go uh whether it's long forum instagram in you know all the different different like outreach spots and then there's the ones i think that they sort of recognize that oh social media has this way of promoting things that are more polarizing so they kind of lean into the extreme or the half truths on social media but then you sit down with them and talk to them for 60 minutes and actually like dive into what they think and like okay this person is actually relatively reasonable it's like, I should only pay attention to them on a podcast, but ignore their Instagram page. That happens all the time. Yeah. Spencer and I find that out all yeah. the time about it's, people on all I different think, levels of extremism. Yeah. Twitter, Twitter's hard though. It's hard to communicate. So like, so people on Twitter get mad at my memes, but if you, I take the memes and I put them on Instagram and I have this long caption that I go through mm -hmm. the caveats of, of each of it. Like, you know, yeah, no, whatever. your stuff is, your stuff is thorough with that. 
Um, I think like the problem is when like, it's almost like talking to you for 60 minutes, Spencer, I like, I can see the similarities between your online content, your short form online content, and your long form content, they, they match. There's some where it's like, I could, if you didn't tell me this was the same person, I would have never guessed yeah. that, yeah. that big of a polarization between well, their long form rhetoric. And yeah. The I mean, I, I don't know if we want to name names, but our uh, vegan surgeon friend, Spencer, I mean, is he is kind of like that? Garth, we can you know his, Okay, <laughs> so he, I don't, Garth. I don't want to be, you know, be listening. Oh, you said I our mean, vegan surgeon friend. There's only one vegan surgeon. Yeah, but you he's know what? Ours. <laughs> his online he's stuff. The, he's exactly like that. He, yeah, we're always you know, like, he's he's, he's online about? a little bit more extreme, and then in reality, he's oh yeah, you know, he's very science based and very mm-hmm. reasonable. And he's a cool dude. He's a great guy. Yeah. So it's yeah, just you, you know, that's just a he has a certain group of followers that's that's what they like when you, you start know? it's it's the best when you start pressuring him a little bit and he gets this little smirk and goes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's, it's <laughs> yeah, yeah, it like he's like yeah yeah i binge on fish every day yeah he's like i love fish <laughs> and honey he's like i'll drink honey even though that people get mad at it because and, and, and i fry up some bees and i eat them too <laughs> <laughs> i'm joking sorry guys i don't yeah, okay. garth garth we love garth but there, yeah. there are other people like that we've met him and and it's kind of like hmm that's interesting. That's not the way you I mean, are. Even, even your your best friend, who I just mentioned earlier, who you met at Obesity Week, and he didn't want you to beat him up. Yeah, true. <laughs> we can mention him. Whatever. All right, what's he gonna do? He blocks everyone, anyways. Yeah, no. I don't think he responded yeah. to my star. No, he tweet. was very, yeah, very reasonable in person. So it was, it was really weird to get threatening tweets. Uh, kind of like, <laughs> what? You literally asked me not to pulverize you in person I was like, of course i would never do that i don't want to go to jail quite frankly the, but the one i always find interesting reason. that kind of showcases sometimes is like with, when lane norton will talk to someone on a podcast it's like oh now i you guys were just going at it and, you know yeah. lane, lane is consistent with his message across all forums but he's definitely like very uh very uh upfront about it on on the social media channels so i think that's the the triggering component to a lot mm-hmm. of people uh, but then, yeah, when you hear him talking to the person online, it's like he draws out the person's actual like kind of context and nuance within it. And yeah. then they probably both come across looking a lot more palatable to the average yeah. person at the end of the day. Yeah. He, well, because I, I before I met him in person in 27 or I guess it was 2014 I met him, but but 2017, I got to hang out with him. It was interesting because before that, you know, I see some of his posts and I'm like, man you love to see yourself talk type of thing. Like you're, you're very loud and, and you know, mm-hmm. it, it, and dare, aggressive, dare say, right? aggressive obnoxious yeah. a little bit. Um, and when I met him in person, I'm like, dude, you're, you're cool, dude. Like, <laughs> and so, uh, it, it is interesting to, to, to see that, um, that difference. So yeah, I don't know, whatever. Twitter, maybe Twitter's just going to burn down. I don't, I actually don't think yeah. it will. Everybody's like screaming from the rooftops that, Twitter's going down. Elon Musk ruined it. I, I, we're going to be listening to this in like a week. It'll, Twitter will be gone. But like, I personally think it will it'll stick around. It'll either be it'll, gone or it'll be worth billions of dollars. There's a, I don't it'll to probably do. be fine. I don't care. I hope it's because yeah, all these, you guys, you, I don't know. How old are you, Zach? 36. All right. You all guys right. are millennials. I don't know what the hell is going on. I'm, th- I'm 38. Yeah. yeah I remember old. the pre-internet days. I, I, I can relate to, uh, the going outside all day long and hearing the bell ring from the doorstep to come home for dinner still. So oh, <laughs> yeah. all right. So, yeah. there's some, there's a, 
I'm, I'm like, a, what do they call an older millennial? I guess. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't keep up with all this. Zennial. I think we're Zennials. I think we're Zennials because like we had ICQ, ICQ, AOL, Messenger. Yeah. No. A five minute web page load. Yeah. Those are the the good days. I'd I'd be okay if all social media just exploded somehow because it drives me crazy. It does make me mad. It makes me mad, but I love it. I love it, but I hate hate it too. Yeah. Well, guys, unfortunately I have an out, but um, I would love to have either of you back on in the future to maybe dive into some of these topics or other ones in more detail, whether it's two of you together or separate would be, would be awesome. Um, but before I do let you go, if you want to share with the listeners where they can find you online, and then I'll make sure to also put that in the show notes. Cool. Yeah. You can find me at Dr. Uh, Nadolsky that's on Instagram and Twitter. If it's around, I think I'm at, at Dr. Spencer on TikTok. Uh, yeah. Dr. Spencer.com join sequence.com is my telemedicine program, whatever. I don't know. And our, our Docs Who Lift podcast, which yes. I think we'll be able to simultaneously publish this, or maybe not simultaneously, but co-publish it uh, uh, with you. And um, I'm at, all my handles are at Dr. Carl Nadolsky, I think for everything, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I can't yeah. even keep track of it. If you're yeah. on it, that's what it is. Yeah. And, for, and for our podcast, though, what's, where, where do we find you? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Human Performance Outliers podcast is the name of this show. Um, social media, I'm a little all over the place with handles, but um, my website at zachbitter.com kind of has links to all of that. Um, yeah, no, I think this was, was a lot of fun to chat. And I will say, uh, Docs Live podcast, I love when you guys do the the kind of the essentially like the 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 pseudo patient where one of you gives the details and the other one says, oh, this is oh. what I would do in this situation. Oh, nice. Um, I well, think, that's good to know. Yeah, that's I love those because it's like, I mean, obviously you guys have very complicated topics that you could, you, each one of your episodes could probably be three hours long if you wanted them to be, <laughs> but you know, you gotta, you gotta meet the listener where they're at. And those I think actually highlight some of the nuance where this is kind of how I would approach the situation. Mm-hmm. People can actually see where you would maybe pivot back and forth between two different yeah. things that they would see as maybe a little more polarizing than it actually needs to be. Yeah. You know, that gives me an idea. You know, you wanted to talk about adrenal fatigue and we'll get to that another time, but maybe what we should do, Spencer, is have him as a guest and almost reverse roles. Let him interview us and ask, ask us questions on our podcast and then simultaneously publish that, that might be good, you know, since he has an idea of what he kind of likes from our, from our stuff and we'll just make it, put it on him. What do you think? Yeah, Let's do it. I'm I'm down for it. Sweet. Let's do it. Cool, man. Thanks for having us on. Absolutely. Take care, guys. Have a great rest of the week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. Hey, folks. Thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll likely know I'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach. If you're looking for a little extra help with your training, and programming. I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy and they scale from five kilometers all the way up to 100 miles and come in three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate, or advanced, 
I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a strength athlete's guide to endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiovascular fitness, or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program. So you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some running or endurance related fitness goals. You can find all those things on my website at zackbitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode.